Welcome to In Conversation. My name is Sarah Kitts. I'm the Artistic Director of GCTC, and today I'm here with Francis Konkan, Anishinaabe and Slovene playwright, and the author of the completely sold-out run of her play, Women of the Fur Trade. Congratulations, Francis, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So for those of you uh, listening who don't know Francis, um, firstly, that's shocking, but secondly, Francis, <laughs> can you you just catch us up on what you've been doing in theater, how you got here, what kind of trajectory your career has taken to this moment? Sure, it sounds easy and great. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, hi everybody, I'm Frances, um, and I'm currently a playwright is what I do. I write plays, I do that. I also uh, teach playwriting at the University of British Columbia, and so right now, my career is very playwright-heavy, writing-focused. Um, prior to that, I kind of had a really, like, chaotic journey uh, in theater and, like, to theater and through theater. Um, I feel like growing up, I, I always did music, so that was really my background. Mm. I played piano, and then I studied French horn at university for a year and a half when I just like one day realized I didn't want to do it anymore uh, and that I wanted to try something else. So I just took like a lot of different classes and I found that uh, theater was really interesting to me and like the possibilities of theater really excited me. Um, and I found that was something I really lacked in like classical music training, mm-hmm. uh, which was very rigid in kind of what you were able to do and allowed to do. So I kind of I always feel like I got off to a late start in theater because I didn't really know about it or see a lot of it until I was like done school. I'd done my undergrad and started to get into theater. I used to uh, always go to New York and see shows. And um, a lot of my early like education in theater was just by watching it mm-hmm. um, more than like any kind of academic training. Um, but eventually... I had seen so much theater and I was like convinced somehow and I don't know why that I could like write a play (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so kind of as a joke I used to write them for my friends and make my friends act them out um, just for fun and that kind of got really good feedback from people who were like these are actually kind of good maybe you should like do something with them so yeah I I got into um, an MFA program for playwriting kind of through one of those silly drafts of plays that I wrote and ever since then I've, I've been pretty lucky to kind of you know find work as a writer as a playwright also as a journalist mm-hmm. which I've done sometimes and sometimes occasionally directing um, but primarily the focus has been playwriting and seems to continue to be playwriting so that's sort of my theater journey um, yeah Love it. Thank you. And so I have to ask, since you have a background in music and now um, you are a very legitimate playwright or whatever that means, I don't know, but (laughs) you are a successful playwright and your work is being produced um, and people love it. Are you, would you ever write a musical? 
Are yes. you planning to write a musical? Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm always, I'm always like planning to write a musical. Whether that ever gets done is probably a different story. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really like, I'm the thing about that is I could definitely write a play faster than I could write a musical. Mm-hmm. I feel like the time commitment is dramatically different. Um, and also it's to a certain extent, it's very like a different kind of writing. Yeah. Um, musicals have like a little, like they have a different, they have sort of a broadness that I'm not great at <laughs> yet. I, I maybe, um, there's a lot of things to like consider and a lot of things I think I'm still learning about what the differences may be mm-hmm. before I really feel confident enough to like take a stab at a musical. But I love, I love musicals. I love, um, and I feel like kind of this, I don't know what it would be called or like what the style is, but there's been some musicals recently that I feel like really fit kind of what I imagine I would like to write. Like one of my favorites, I think it's playing in Toronto right now, is Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. yes, it's at Crow's Theater. Yeah, Mm. and I saw that um, when I was in school in like 2013, it was playing at... Ars Nova in New York so the tiny little bar where it first started and I saw that production and I got to see like the off-Broadway tent production then I got to see the Broadway production and like just to see this musical that was you know such a small little thing uh performed by the same guy who wrote it Mm. you know with like minimal orchestration and how that kind of grew and expanded that kind of inspired me a lot because it reminded me that it doesn't necessarily start out yes. as big as like the finished product yeah. it does start with just like the few people in the room and like a piano that's amazing that you got to see that show through its expanding life which yeah. is actually something that I want to talk to you about because um, Women of the Fur Trade has had many lives already um, there were early iterations which were on the fringe circuit which uh, were only the three female characters. I remember seeing it in Toronto and um, being disruptive with the amount of laughter and cackling coming out of my body. Um, and then later it had a larger life at the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre and now it's been to the Stratford Festival. Mm-hmm. And now here we are with a sold-out run in a co-production between GCTC and NAC Indigenous Theatre in Ottawa before it transfers to Toronto in the spring at Native Earth Um, and in Canadian theatre as I'm sure you know it is quite difficult to even get to a premiere and then there are so many plays that after they premiere are never seen or heard from again so what does it mean to you as a playwright for your play Women of the Fur Trade to have had such an expansive developmental and also production life across the country Mm -hmm. well first of all I just want to say you just did a really good job of like getting all of this info out there about like the producers of the show (laughs) that was really smooth thank you (laughs) um yeah I think I like just like to reiterate what you're saying it is so difficult it's such a it, it feels almost impossible basically to get a play produced Mm. beyond like the fringe uh because I was doing shows basically once I finished school in like 2015 I did fringe every year so fringe for like five years Mm -hmm. um and one of those shows 
has had a more than one production, but that was five different plays, you know? Yeah. So one out of five was like the track record for me at the time. And, uh, that's a good track record. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know many, many playwrights that have wonderful work that have never had a production. Um, to me, it really, I think it, it speaks to like, specifically to like the time and like the capacity and the interest that theaters have right now for like work outside of like what we're used to seeing Mm -hmm. by the people we're used to seeing um I think a bit I I think a big part of like the success of the play is it just came wrong at that time kind of where there was a big reckoning about like race and racism and structures and theater and how they were like upholding all of that and it it you know the timeliness of a play uh, with indigenous actors, which, with an indigenous writer to come along that could also kind of bridge sort of a gap, I think, between the, you know, the really, really different kind of work and the, the work people are used to seeing. Mm. Um, I think it was just like the right time because Women of the Fur Trade to me, like there's a lot that breaks from like what I think a well-made play would be. But there's a lot of it that really follows the same kind of like arc of like, you know, escalation to a climax and all of that. Mm-hmm. I think it has a lot of familiarity of familiar moments and familiar beats that like an audience would recognize. But then like the surprising elements that come in mm-hmm. that kind of disrupt that. And I think a lot of the success of that play for me is really related to that idea that institutions are like starting to be disrupted and to welcome that disruption and kind of mirrors what's going on there yeah yeah I hear that I think that your play is so I think that's true I think it's so um deeply accessible to theater going audiences while Mm -hmm. also being full of surprise which is so satisfying nice yeah And in it, you're tackling, as you say, some very heavy subject matter, right? Racism, colonialism, land theft, broken treaties, um, and a lot of history that, you know, be it as it may, a lot of people, particularly outside of Indigenous communities on this land, are probably not deeply familiar with. Mm -hmm. Um, And you place us so unmistakably in a comedy, <laughs> which is amazing, and I think is part of what makes the show so enjoyable, of course, but also accessible mm-hmm. um, as a way into this material. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you see the function of comedy being in this play and in your writing in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's always an interesting question about comedy because I... Like, definitely when I first started writing, I thought I would be, like, a really serious, dramatic writer. Mm-hmm. Um, we all think that. Yeah, ourselves. <laughs> I, I was like, for sure. I mean, it, everyone's going to cry all the time. Um, and that'll be that. But, yeah, I definitely, like, early on, I, I definitely noticed, like, oh, people are laughing at these things that um, I wasn't intentionally trying to make funny. Mm. Uh, and that didn't bother me. It just made me like interested uh, to find out why. Um, and I think early on, I realized they were laughing because they were uncomfortable, right? But also because something about how I was setting up the world of the show was seemed to be kind of comedic. 
um, like accidentally. I think part of that is I probably just how I am in general. Like I, I, I do like to go for the joke, and mm-hmm. I can usually find like a punchline in something. Um, and I think that probably comes across. And like if I'm like doing a workshop with some with actors, and then they all get on that, you know, they all get on the same kind of trail and they're Mm -hmm. all looking for the punchlines and trying to like punch everything up um but it wasn't until like probably like working through this play and going to workshops and readings that I was really like oh so everyone's saying this is a comedy Hmm. and then going well what is comedy what does that mean um and actually starting to do like the research on like what is comedy Mm. what makes people laugh why does comedy work um and that's something that I'm really interested in now I love to kind of discover how to use comedy in different ways but I think like to me it's it's just a way of being able to access ideas in like a safer way kind of it's it's sort of like a little buffer a little like barrier between you know something that could be really traumatic and hurtful and scary um and it gives you like that little bit of like safety to like go into it but it's okay because we'll pull you back out kind of it's a little like lifeboat yeah um that you can throw out and uh you know pull people back in Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a great answer yeah it feels like you're the way in which the comedy functions in your play acts both as um like that safe bouncy distance between the trauma and the feeling Mm -hmm. but also as a way in to the mm-hmm. content so it's kind of playing double duty which I find really fascinating mm-hmm. and I feel like anachronism folds into your use of comedy as well right mm-hmm. because it's set in 1800 and something something but also you know the language and the sense of celebrity culture mm-hmm. is so contemporary and you seem to have a kind of um I hope this is okay. I feel like when I interview people, they're like, oh, you're talking about me to me, and that is slightly <laughs> no, uncomfortable. Tell me, I <laughs> um, but you seem to have a fascination with celebrities and with celebrity culture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, in the play, but also no, outside, so, so outside true. of the play. So true. Um, and I wonder if you can talk about the role of celebrity and pop culture inside of your writing and your sense of style in the mm. writing. Like, what... what um, engine does celebrity turn on for you? Mm, that's a great question and a good observation. Yeah, I think um, I've always been, I mean, mostly I'm just like obsessively interested in people, mm. I think is like my fundamental like way of seeing the world is just like obsessively interested in people. Um, but yeah, definitely growing up, like I was such a film and TV nerd. That's all I did. Um, so I watched every show. I watched every movie. I knew all the actors, not personally, but you know, I knew who they were. I knew what they did. I knew like what they were good at and what they struggled. Like I knew them, mm-hmm. um, to like a degree that I kind of thought everybody did. And it wasn't <laughs> until I got older that I was like, oh no, people just like watch a movie and then, you know, they don't need to know everything about this person and everything they've ever done. Um, when I was in high school, I remember... I don't know why I don't know the spark of it but I remember watching I had a month called Keanathon where I watched every single Keanu Reeves movie love it and I like documented it on Tumblr I don't know if it exists anymore but 
Yeah, I, I saw, I think I saw Speed or something, and I was like, I think Keanu Reeves is really underrated. Uh, and then I watched all his movies, and I still believe that, by the way. Uh, I think he's a wonderful actor, and I think we're seeing him gain a level of respect these days mm-hmm. that he didn't have before, so that's great. Sidebar, was this before <laughs> or after he played Hamlet at the Manitoba Theatre Center? Well, he played Hamlet in 1994. Okay. Uh, so this is after. After. <laughs> But uh, I also didn't see that, unfortunately. But um, So, yeah, I've always uh, had an interest in celebrity, mostly because that's what was just I, what I was seeing all the time. And I think the internet really exacerbated that because then it, you kind of come inundated with all of, all of the things. Um, today, though, I'm, I'm mostly just, like, I don't know. It feels so much a part of my world that it's hard to be like, what part yeah. does it play? I'm like, yeah. I don't know, it just exists, it's there. Um, I feel like I don't take it as seriously, but I'm very like aware of things. Like right now I'm very aware of like, say what happened at the Golden Globes mm-hmm. and all of the drama that went down with like Taylor and Selena and Kylie and Timothy <laughs> Chalamet. Like I can tell you all of that. Um, and to me it's just kind of like, human behavior on display mm-hmm. in a very like accessible mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. you know like they're they're people and they're they're doing people things and we get to watch it and see it yeah and learn from it yeah so really to me that's probably where my interest comes from because I'm always like well why would she do that and then I'm like oh maybe it was a PR move because x is like coming out next week <laughs> I just really enjoy I think like that's, that. that's interesting because it seems from my vantage, the way you um, interact with celebrity culture is both like deeply invested, but also totally irreverent, <laughs> yeah. which is like similar to the comedy in your show, you know, and in the content, right? Like deeply invested and you can't get to the punchline without being deeply invested, yeah. but also like sending it up at the same time. Yeah. I really... Well, okay, so there's this, like, saying that I think about all the time. It's, it's I may be cringe, but I am free. Mm. It's because you, you're so invested, and even if it's, like, cringy and embarrassing, you're still there, and because of, because of your investment, you're free. You're, you're not, like, at the whims of anyone's judgment. You've got this. And I think about that a lot. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it is kind of cringe to <laughs> be, like, a pop culture junkie today I think people often like look down on it but uh it doesn't bother me I love it yeah no judgment (laughs) what do you want people to take from this show Mm, that's a good question I mean one thing that I really hope people take away from it is just a, a curiosity or like a you know, blossoming interest in kind of the history of the country, mm-hmm. specifically like the founding of provinces that we often forget about, you know, yeah. the prairies that we sometimes overlook. Uh, that's definitely part of it. Um, but also to just like question, you know, what we've been taught and what we've been told, what we've learned. Um, that was sort of my initial spark for the play was like questioning what I'd been taught about the fur trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's definitely always something that I hope get sparked in others when they watch it um yeah yeah I, I think people will walk away talking about that there's a lot of unlearning that's happening yeah. in this country right now um 
So before we started this recording, you were telling me that you are teaching playwriting right now at UBC, mm-hmm. and I'm curious to know if you see when you're teaching emerging playwrights a kind of emerging trend or things that brand new young baby playwrights are wanting to talk about that's different from the kind of territory mm-hmm. that you and your contemporaries are treading. Yeah, that's a great question because it's so most of the people that I teach, I guess, I guess would be Gen Z, uh, which freaks me out because I feel young, but like I'm a millennial, so they think I'm old. Um, <laughs> something that I really noticed with them is there's a lot of like, for them, social media is not, it's not just like a thing you can have. It's such a core part of like their experience of life. Um, so that becomes a really common element of their plays not necessarily that they're about social media but that social media always has some kind of active role in it right that's like moving the plot along kind of which I think is interesting because I also think or in my experience sometimes theaters and directors don't really know what to do with that because they're like this is what is this what and I'm, it's sort of like the equivalent I guess of like you know, when the phone was becoming a thing, I'm sure yeah. writers were like, well, I want to use the phone as like a device. But people are like, no, 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 that's, that's weird. So, so it's like, I see that as a big transition point mm-hmm. uh, for them. But also just like what they're talking about. I think there's a lot, a lot more people who are able to be like open about their identities and sexualities. So you see that a lot in their work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something that I've noticed about the social media or the new technology in plays is how it changes the dramaturgy and the storytelling because if social media, if you're setting a play, Mm -hmm. a traditional-ish, in air quotations, theater play in a social media era, you can't do, you know, what the Greeks did where they wait for the messenger to come, (laughs) you know, to relay information, which may or may not be true because people have phones on them and information travels at the speed of, you know, seconds across the world. So it really changes, you know, the speed of, yeah, the speed of dissemination within the story itself, mm-hmm. to say nothing of the actual technology in the production. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a whole new world. It really is. And there's a lot of, like, kind of familiar ways that, you know, I, like, there's, like, episodes of, like, sitcoms I remember where, like, the plot hinges on, like, oh, you know... We're, we're stuck somewhere and the payphone's not working or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're like, well, you can't do that anymore because yeah. people probably have phones and you have to be like, oh, my charger broke. Oh, someone said there's no signal. Like, you always have to add that little, yes. like, clarification of why you can't just call someone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so you're being very successfully produced and you're teaching playwriting at the mm. same time. And so between these two experiences is, and also you are a very regular theater goer here, as well as I know you go to New York frequently to see work. And I'm wondering, is there something that you want to see more of in theater? And maybe particularly in Canadian theater, is there something that you're really sort of hankering for that's starting to happen or that you don't see anywhere or that you just have a great desire for that's a big question I know um I not like not specifically but something that I feel like I always just want to see more of is like 
plays or work that I can tell who the writer is, if this makes sense. Like, mm. I love when I see a show and I'm like, that's an so-and-so piece or like mm. so-and-so did this. And it just so much of like their personality comes through yeah. and it's, it's so unique to them and so original to them. You know, no one else could have written this piece, like work like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not that that doesn't happen, but I think a lot of times, especially like, cause I live in a smaller city or I grew up in a smaller city. Um, and I think with, uh, like the pieces that often make it to theaters like that, they're meant for, you know, to speak to a larger audience. And, uh, with that writing like that, you do have to, you know, no one really wants to see me on a page in necessarily. Uh, whereas when you're working in like smaller theaters and bigger cities, you can be really specific and you can like hone in on a specific audience and mm-hmm. like put yourself in there like a hundred percent and make it really you. Um, and I just like work like that, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't always work. Like I just saw Here We Are uh, at the Shed in New York, mm-hmm. which is like Sondheim's last show. Yeah. And it's like incomplete. Um, and it doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> but the actors were having so much fun and like the audience was so excited to be there. And you like could tell it's a Stephen Sondheim show just from like yeah. every little rhyme and all the little like mm. tricks that were in it. And I was like, oh, that's just so like heartwarming. Sondheim, what a genius. Yeah. Um, what are you dying to write that you haven't written yet? <laughs> um, oh, that's a good question. I mean, like, a murder mystery. Oh. I think that has a lot of uh, possibility. Mm-hmm. It could be really exciting. Yeah. I think that's my thing. Great. That sounds really fun. I want to read it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been on my mind for a while, and I really like that genre. And um, it's just a matter. I just need to like, you know, mostly I just need to do it. Mm. I guess is the barrier. Don't we all? So, in the world of no one gets anywhere all by themselves, are there artists that you want to shout out that are either mentors? Mm. Or exciting emerging artists who are coming up, someone who's changed your life or whose life you're going to change with the <laughs> small listening listenership of this in conversation podcast. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess my like my OG playwriting mentor was my professor at Brooklyn College, Mac Wellman. Mm-hmm. He just completely, you know, changed my idea of what theater was and what it could be and like what you could do as a theater artist and I think I brought a lot of those tools like back with me even though I consider myself a fairly like mainstream kind of writer um and like I was in an experimental program and I kind of I really value what he dropped in my brain um it's been very useful uh and then being in Winnipeg uh the people that I really really was always inspired by um they're actually doing a show at Buddies right now Dasha Plett and Gislina Patterson Mm. uh we've sort of come up in theater together and uh I think they're probably the people I would say are like some of the most exciting Winnipeg artists um kind of doing work right now yes so I should shout out to them um yeah this is off the top of my head yeah amazing thank you and I'm sure they thank you I'm so curious to know if you want to say like in a nutshell what what your OG playwriting teacher dropped into your brain that made you reconsider 
what theater could be or what plays could do? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know how clear it can be because it's all like, I don't know. It's dispersed now throughout you know my body. Um, but definitely when I started my MFA, uh, most of what I had seen was like big regional productions uh, in large houses or Broadway. Okay. Uh, which is a very specific kind of theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was coming into that program with sort of that as my my knowledge base. And immediately, just from reading like classmates' plays and uh, so people that had like been in my program previous years, uh, Annie Baker, who wrote like The Flick, mm-hmm. uh, and John, which was one of my favorites, uh, she was a couple years ahead of me. Uh, Young Jean Lee, who wrote Straight White Men, mm-hmm. The Shipment, she was a couple years ahead of me. But those were the people right. predeceasing, pre- pre- whatever, you know what I mean, Yeah. Uh, in that program. And just being introduced to like what they were writing and how different it was from what I had been used to seeing, like Rent and Wicked and The Phantom of the Opera, which I still love. Um, and just realizing like you can do so much more. Mm-hmm. There's so many possibilities. Um, and it's okay to break the rules, I think was the biggest thing that he really instilled, I think, in everyone. There's actually like this great article online that someone did all about him as a teacher um, that really, I think, sums everything up. I don't know what it's called, but if you Google Mac Wellman, uh, it's probably the first thing that comes up. Okay, amazing. Yeah. Okay, closing question. What is the next big rule in theater that you're looking to break? Oh, gosh. I don't know. That's a tough question. (laughs) How do you know? Yeah, maybe you don't. Are you, okay, are you an emergent? Sorry, this is a process question. When you're writing a play, do you draft an outline and have an understanding of what's going to happen and then you fill it in, fill it in, fill it in? Or do you start writing and it emerges from the depths? Yeah. So, yeah. I've, I've done both. Um, Women of the Fur Trade was just emerging. Mm-hmm. I just wrote it uh, and didn't really know where it was going or what it was doing. Um, and that's sort of how I worked through it all the time. Whereas I just did a play last year called Space Girl, which is streaming virtually at Prairie Theatre Exchange website. Yes. Um, and that one, I was like, well, let's try something different. So that one I outlined mm. uh, specifically because it was um, really genre focused. It was sci-fi and fantasy. And I wanted to like make sure I had the beats of those genres down. So I did outline. Um, so I've done both. And I think... I... I think my preference is to start writing and see where it goes. Because mm-hmm. um, I did find, with outlining, I did feel a bit more like like I was kind of in a factory. You know, like kind <laughs> yeah. of like just like plugging little things in and being like, okay, now yeah. here's some conflict us to go through. <laughs> uh, it, was, it kind of took away like the magic for me a little. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... I. Th- I think my process has sort of evolved to be a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I find outlining kind of valuable after I like get everything out in the first draft and then to organize it with an outline. That makes sense I think to has me. been useful. Yeah. I imagine if you start with the outline, you, you possibly just sort of removing 
removing the space for mystery and surprise yeah. and magic. Yeah, it's kind of like, why am I writing it? Because I already know it's going to happen. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But I really respect people that can outline, like... Yeah. Because when you do that, it's just brilliant. Me too. It must feel very, you know, affirming yeah. to know where you're headed exactly. <laughs> in life like, yeah. or in a writing project. Yeah. Um, Francis, thank you so much for spending this time with me to talk about your show and your writing life. Um, and just before we part, please tell us what your favorite thing about being in Ottawa is. Uh, thanks for having me. My favorite thing about... Being in Ottawa, is that every day I send messages to Justin Trudeau's social media yes, to, like try, knew it was to, be about Justin. to try to get him to come see the show, and so I just happy. I like that I'm here and could could facilitate that if necessary. I feel like there is a photo of his dad on stage, but not a photo of him. Missed opportunity. <laughs> but, you know, if we could get him on if that stage, could we, put a, we could put a photo of him on the set. Perfect. Justin, if you're listening, it's not too late. We can make your dreams come true, Justin. <laughs> Thank you so much, Francis. Thank you. Thank you.